we were swimming around these corals. And I realized all the, uh, the coral reefs that used to be very colorful, blue colors, yellowish, there was no more beauty there. The corals were already dead. This is Anelisa Poanga, former prime minister of Tuvalu, recounting the moments when climate change became real for him. It was in the mid-1990s, and he was back in his home country for university holidays. You go and swim in these coral reefs now, nothing there. Most people in the Pacific have a moment like this. For me, the moment was in 1990, during Cyclone Ofa. I was eight years old. As the storm ripped through my village, I watched as my uncle hung onto the corrugated iron roof of the open valley we occupied. At one point, he was lifted up by the wind and suspended in midair. It was terrifying. Most of our village was left in ruins that day. For Vanuatu politician Ralph Raganbanu, it was Cyclone Pam in 2015. At the time, he was a minister of government and was living in Vanuatu's capital of Port Vila. And just coming out the front gate, and seeing how it was just totally covered in debris. There was no way to move. I, I, I sort of just lost at that point. I just thought, there's no way. I can't think of how we are going to make any decisions to get ourselves out of what we've just experienced and what's before my eyes. And I think that was when I realised that, uh, you know, how frail we are in the face of these kind of massive climate disaster events. In August this year, the UN issued a code red for humanity. The latest report from its chief climate change group, the IPCC, painted a dire picture of the future for the planet, given the trajectory we're on. The UN says this is a code red for humanity. Hundreds more are still missing after the worst flooding in parts of Western Europe for several decades. Record-breaking rainfall has caused severe flooding in parts of central China. The 21st cyclone to hit the Philippines this year. Out of control wildfire. The most powerful storm ever to hit. The country is burning. It's been labelled the worst fire season ever recorded. When I first heard about a code red, to be honest, I was furious that it had taken so long for the world to catch on to how serious the climate crisis is. For decades, Pacific leaders have been warning that climate change is real and drastically affecting our islands, and that our economies, our jobs, our lives, and even the continued existence of our countries have and continue to be at stake. So, what happens next? What plans are Pacific Island leaders making to secure their future? And what does the Pacific truly deserve? In a few weeks' time, world leaders will gather in Glasgow for the UN's annual climate change conference, COP26. COP's a big deal because it's where countries negotiate and decide what they're going to do about climate change. This is where global emission targets and actions are set. It's also an important forum for Pacific leaders to make their case to the world about urgent actions needed. 
But this year, because of the pandemic, fewer Pacific Island leaders will be able to attend. Here's Vanuatu politician Ralph Raganvanu. Vanuatu will not be sending anybody in person. Other countries are sending much smaller delegations. Fiji is sending some, New Guinea is sending some. There are other countries like Vanuatu not sending anyone at all. Which is a shame, because Pacific leaders have had a huge impact on climate negotiations in the past. In 2015, at COP21 in France, Pacific leaders successfully pushed for the Paris Agreement to include the commitment to try to keep global heating to less than 1.5 degrees. And it was very clear that it was the personal pressure applied by our leaders in person at the meeting that was able to make significant change uh, in terms of the targets that were set. Fiji's ambassador to the UN, Satyendra Prasad, agrees that the fewer Pacific leaders at COP, the harder it will be to have their concerns heard. International agreements are about averages and where the consensus uh, can be gained. When you are not there, you are not heard. That will uh, make a difference between uh, whether many of the, our islands continue to exist or not, not exist. 1.5 degrees Celsius seems to be a very ambitious goal. But uh, it's a compromise uh, we in the Pacific small island states have agreed to. Uh, But we also need to tell the world that even at uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius across the Pacific, uh, something like between 30 to 100 percent of our economies uh, cease to exist, even at 1.5. We have seen the IPPC uh, report recently. We are too, too close, too dangerously close to 1.5. And uh, for many of our countries and for islands across all our countries, uh, uh, what uh, a future beyond 1.5 is something we don't even want to imagine. Tuvalu's analyst Upoanga knows how important it is to be in the room. He was one of the lead Pacific negotiators at COP21 in Paris when he was Prime Minister of Tuvalu. So Poanga says that as the conference went on, he grew increasingly frustrated because he felt the agreement was not ambitious enough. And I strongly believed we would have the worst agreement. It would just empty papers, papers with words with nothing inside. I would just walk away from now, right now. Then John Kerry, U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, invited Sopoanga to his office to discuss the clause about loss and damage. That is, what compensation might be available for Pacific countries for harm inflicted due to global heating. We sent our advisors away. So we were two in the room, and we were drinking water and eating peanuts in the middle of the night. Somehow he spilled his glass of water. He got all our papers wet on the table. I said, John, you know what? That's exactly what you're going to do if there's no loss and damage in the Paris Agreement to islands like mine, like Tuvalu. All of us will go underwater. He looked at me and said, I think I got your message. I put those two paragraphs in to make sure loss and damage, not to sell the interests of small island uh, development states like Tuvalu, but to make sure we open the way forward, a roadmap to physically address the possibility of loss and damage in the event that we have no more to adapt to, that the lands of Tuvalu would have gone into the sea. 
The issue of loss and damage that Sopoanga and Kerry discussed is extremely critical to the future of Pacific Islands because as the crisis continues to threaten the very existence of our islands, our leaders are turning their attention to the question of climate justice. Here's Vanuatu's Ragan Vanu again. Those who contribute, those that are responsible for the causes of climate change have to pay for the damages we are experiencing. And that's basically uh, the bottom line. With high-emitting countries being so slow to act on climate change, nations like Vanuatu are now looking at whether legal action is a way to protect their future. So I'm recording this uh, interview in my home in Port Vila. Like so many of us, Ralph Reganvanu is working from home at the moment. I'm surrounded by a family who you may hear. But it's not slowing him down. Climate litigation was something he started to pursue when he was foreign minister. He's now in opposition. Vanuatu is ranked by the UN as the country most at risk of climate-induced disasters, particularly cyclones. These extreme weather events have become more frequent and more severe due to climate change. Climate change is unjust or unjust because its impacts are felt first and hardest by those of the least responsibility for its causes. This is the money. I mean, we're talking about where we're going to get the money that we need to adapt, deal with loss and damage, having um, the countries who have been responsible for creating the problem of climate change, compensating in some way the countries that are not responsible, but now the victims, uh, like my own. Just last month, Vanuatu announced it would seek a legal advisory opinion at the International Court of Justice at The Hague. This will clarify the obligations different countries have when it comes to climate action. And it could also help vulnerable countries take legal action. There is responsibility for climate change that can be attributed to certain countries, certain companies. We are not saying we're going to be taking other states to court. We believe it would be a step forward in terms of uh, starting to address some of these issues in a concrete way rather than simply discussing them endlessly. It would help the climate negotiations by providing this clear legal framework that I've been talking about for all countries to follow. This would mean that obligations of countries to reduce emissions would be spelt out by a court, which would help pave the way if a country did decide to sue another over climate damage. Hopefully, it would also encourage countries to honour the commitments they've agreed to, like the Paris Agreement. The nature of climate change action is that, you know, the countries that are the big emitters, the polluters that have caused the climate crisis, are on the other side of the table to those that are the victims and continue to benefit and have economies largely predicated on fossil fuel extraction and use. And that's been the history of climate change action over decades. The biggest barrier is, of course, the countries that continue to rely on fossil fuel economies and the companies that keep governments in power in those countries. We just want to see those commitments actually implemented to their fullest, because that is the situation we are in now. It's a a crisis. Some of us are more fortunate not to be on the cutting edge of that crisis, but the majority of the world is already uh, well into that crisis and living it daily. And so if we are truly an international community, Um, a brotherhood of nations or sisterhood of nations, 
uh, we hope that actions will be taken that reflect that attitude. For Oregon Vanu, the decision to pursue an ICJ advisory opinion at The Hague is about getting clarity on what countries like Australia, who have built their wealth in carbon industries, all countries like Vanuatu, who are suffering for it. It's also about preparing for the future. Because we can't continue just to be responding, we've got to find a way to plan and be able to deal with this issue of moving people because it, it will become much more the norm in the future. Vanuatu's plan is one way the Pacific Islands are seeking climate justice. But there are a lot of questions to be asked about the kind of climate justice the Pacific Islands truly deserve. As the impacts of climate change are felt, Pacific nations are facing questions about their very existence, not just as islands, but as states. If your land disappears, does that mean your country ceases to exist as well? I have to stress first that an island has never disappeared as a fact. Um, So this is a new issue that the international community um, is going to have to deal with if indeed a whole island disappears, and in particular um, due to climate change and its adverse impacts like sea level rise. This is Patricia Galvao-Teles, co-chair of the study group on sea level rise at the International Law Commission. It's her job, along with other members of the ILC, to understand the legal implications of sea level rise and map out possible solutions to put before the UN. The traditional path would be for the international community to wait until the state would disappear, then to find the solution. But that's too late. That's not a satisfactory answer. Uh, If we think that this may happen at the end of the century, um, the international community should start thinking now about what are the uh, legal implications of that factual um, uh, phenomena due to sea level rise. So what options are available that countries can pursue under international law in the event of a disappearing island? I think one of the reasons why we're doing this work, uh, because it's not very clear. I mean, we've, uh, from the legal point of view, the issue of the creation of states has merited a lot of attention. You know, new states that have emerged due to different phenomena, you know, from decolonization to states splitting up. And the opposite phenomena, which is the disappearance of the states, um, has not happened. This is a very complicated area of international law, and a big part of what makes this complicated is the definition of statehood. There are criterias, and one of them is territory. That is, a state must have land which is intact and naturally forming. And so what are the implications um, of the physical disappearance? Does the state disappear also legally? Or do we consider that in this specific case, it would continue in existence? This is an issue that has never been discussed. But what about other losses that are immeasurable for Pacific Islands? Tradition, culture, identity, and ancestral sense of place. 
things that cannot be moved, that are entrenched with island, soil, and sea. What do we do about these things? Because the reality is, our islands, especially those of smaller atoll nations of the Pacific, are slowly eroding and will eventually disappear. Irrespective of our deep sense of place, some people will be forced to move. Many already have. So what becomes of us? What becomes of the Tuvaluan, of the Tokilauan, of the Marshallese, without their land, without their sense of place? What becomes of the bond to their ancestral home, the soil that provides cultural grounding, and the identities tied to the land of their birth? If the island that gives them their identities and makes them who they are disappears from beneath their feet, then who do they become? It's just so, so complicated, which is something I spoke about with Satyendra Prasad, the Fijian ambassador to the UN. Uh, Fiji has begun to relocate uh, communities, and we, have, uh, we are right now within the volume of resources that we have committed ourselves to relocating uh, 45 uh, communities. And again, uh, uh, we uh, keep on trying to explain this. It is not something as simple as uh, pulling out uh, 30 or 40 houses in a village and, and moving them a bit further uh, upfield. It is, I, I wish it were that simple. Uh, you have to move a school together with the community because the children of that uh, community go to a school. You uh, need to move a health centre uh, because a health centre is uh, probably associated with that. You need to uh, move uh, roads uh, to wherever the community is uh, going to be relocated. You have to move electricity, water, the whole of the infrastructure, all of that part. So none of this is easy. Every one relocation is a very complicated set of uh, uh, investments uh, in, in uh, that affect and touch all aspects of human lives. And in case you thought even that uh, was uh, not too difficult, in the end you also have to relocate a church. And that is uh, equally uh, hard. And uh, in case uh, even that you were able to achieve, you have to relocate people's burial grounds. Try doing that. I um I was tearing up as you were saying that because um I was thinking how do I move my mother's grave you know these are the things that don't necessarily occur to say a european relocation specialist absolutely it it's all of this is uh, very hard i wish uh, uh, they were a function of uh, money alone they're not. As Prasad is speaking, a memory comes to me. It's from about 15 years ago when we unearthed the bones of my great-grandmother from her grave in a cultural ceremony to move her to a more secure grave with my grandmother. It was a deeply emotional undertaking for our family. I don't even know how that would be done for the burial grounds of an entire village or community. It's simply unfathomable. Who wants to live where you saw her uh, homeland where you were born and your grandparents were born, where you were, you played and grew up and went to school? Who wants to live? You tell me. How can this ever be a voluntary and uh, 
who wants to live uh, your own uh, uh, traditional lands and then uh, live uh, essentially as a lessee on uh, land that is owned by another uh, uh, community no one wants to do that right and uh, so yeah it is uh, it is uh, hard prasad's emotional response in our interview was confronting raw and strangely comforting because his presence in a leadership role in the very rooms that make decisions about our future means that the concerns of pacific islanders for the bones of our ancestors have a chance to be considered And of course, what's happening now in the Pacific and the impossible choices Pacific leaders, communities and individuals are making are the impossible choices that all countries will be faced with in the years to come. Sometimes uh, we do say that there'll be a perhaps a canary in the in the mine and uh, uh, we are small countries of uh, small populations and uh, much larger countries might be Uh, requiring to do this on much larger scale in future and uh, i hope uh, they are looking to us and uh, learning of uh, what uh, a, a pathway beyond 1.5 might look like for them as well It's already too late for some villages. Soon it will be too late for entire islands of the Pacific. The sea has already eroded coastlines and floods have claimed whole communities. This is not our doing. There is a great injustice that is downplayed due to the size of our islands. The Pacific contributes the least to the climate crisis yet continues to pay a high price for it and that price will eventually include the very land we stand on no one should have to be faced with a choice that is not of their making to stay or to leave our home island yet this is the impossible choice future generations of the pacific will be forced to make An impossible choice was produced by AudioCraft's Laura Briley-Newton and Jess Beneath. Executive producers are Kate Lyons and Jess Beneath. Sound and mix by John Chia. Additional research by Joshua McDonald. And I'm your host Langipoiva Sherelle Jackson.